Welcome back to Trenus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and uh, people, I probably am going to get into this a little bit more later on, but at least for right now, I think I'm kind of done in on superhero comics, or for that matter, superhero anything, and it seems that my... I don't even know what to call it. Apathy, maybe? Well, I guess that works as well as anything else. My growing apathy, it seems like it's being shared across other portions of the fandom. Now, the really weird thing about this whole apathy spiral that I'm in at the moment is it has done absolutely nothing to temper my my passion and enthusiasm for comic books in general it's it's really a, a case of there's a specific genre of comics that i'm just not super interested in talking about right now so i don't know maybe that's the best the best way to say it. so the reason i'm kind of dwelling on this right now is because of the fact that last week I, or in last week's episode, I suggested the likelihood that I was going to talk about a Cyberfrog comic this week, and I just wasn't feeling it, guys. It just, I guess, more releasing it. Uh, talking about Cyberfrog, I guess that's one thing, but it's just, the way that things are right now, I'm just really not in any kind of mood to release an episode like that. So, what shall I talk about this week? Well, I was flipping through my comics, which, honestly, even that is kind of a euphemism because I'm pretty much like 99% digital now with my comics. So, in a manner of speaking, I was flipping through my comics on my app, and tumbled onto something that I've actually been wanting to talk about for a pretty long time now, and it seems that this is actually a pretty good window to release this type of episode, so I guess without further ado, I'll just go ahead and say that I'm going to be talking about Tomb of Dracula number one today. Now, it's really hard to, to be sure. I don't know what the hell happens to your memory as you get older. Like, back in my 20s, I swear to think that there was virtually nothing, nothing at all that I would forget. Ever. Anything. But these days, I'm lucky if I if I leave home and remember to bring my wallet with me. You know, it's a, it's a weird thing. So, I, anyway, I don't know what the fuck's going on, but my point in saying all of this is to say that there's a possibility that I may have promised this issue to somebody else. And obviously I'm doing this episode solo, so there is no one else who's going to be joining in with me. And I don't know. I mean, it's just... I can't really remember who, if anybody, I, I promised to share this, this comic book with. Uh, it could be that I'm just completely imagining stuff, but I, I don't think so. But 
the more I started thinking about it, the more I figured, you know what? I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time and for my own reasons. And so now seems like it's actually going to be a pretty good time for me to talk about it. I mean, guys, just look at the calendar. If I've timed this right, this episode's going to be coming out not right at uh, Halloween, but kind of, sort of, maybe a little bit close to Halloween. So, anyway, we shall see. In any case, though, uh, let's just go ahead and get into it. This is Tomb of Dracula number one. Cover date is April 1972. Cover artist is Neil Adams. Writer is Jerry Conway. Penciler is Gene Colan. Inker is Gene Colan. Letterer is John Costanza. Editor is Stan Lee. And then, paradoxically, Editor-in-Chief is also Stan, Stan Lee. So, I don't know. Anyway, synopsis for this story, which is entitled Dracula. Synopsis for Dracula is as follows. Frank Drake, a descendant of the legendary Count Dracula, has come to Transylvania with his girlfriend, Jean. Frank has inherited the Count's former home, a castle located in the mountains of Transylvania. Joining them is Frank's friend and Jean's former boyfriend, Clifton Graves. The trio is driving in from London, and their car breaks down along the way. As they push their vehicle, Frank notices that Clifton's been acting increasingly strange since they left England. Arriving in a nearby village, they find that the people there are superstitious, believing all the old tales of vampire lore. Seeking a coach to take them the rest of the way to Castle Dracula, they only find a man named Otto, who doesn't buy into the superstitions of the people in town. Drake and his companions continue their journey uh, despite the warnings from the townsfolk to turn away. Frank is convinced that he, can use to, that he can use his inheritance to make Transylvania a tourist spot. Arriving at the castle on their last $10, the trio is dropped off, and it's at that time that Clifton makes an unwelcome pass at Jean. Looking at the castle, Drake recalls how he blew the million dollars he inherited along with the castle, and reflects on the summer where he met Jean. With no money to show for himself, he'd attempt to get loans from his friends to no avail. However, when telling his friend Clifton about his ownership of Castle Dracula, Clifton became, or rather Clifton, <clears throat> Clifton came up with the scheme to turn it into a tourist trap. Drake spent some time researching his family's past and reading the diaries of his family and that of Van Helsing as well. Convinced that Castle Dracula could be turned into a tourist destination, Frank agreed to go on this expedition. Frank and the others enter. Uh, uh, Frank and the others enter into Castle Dracula. Inside, the group is accosted by a group of bats, freaking out Jean. The group then splits up. Jean considers how their travels have changed both Frank and Clifton, while Clifton explores another part of the castle hoping to exploit the situation and wondering what he ever saw in Jean. <clears throat> Clifton ends up breaking through some old floorboards and falls through to a lower level of the castle. Following the steps, Clifton leads himself into the castle's tomb and finds the coffin where Count Dracula's earthly remains are kept. Opening the coffin, 
Clifton finds Dracula bones, uh, Dracula's bones with a wooden stake jutting out of its chest. While plotting to kill Frank to take over ownership of the castle, Clifton removes the stake from the bones and walks out of the room. Unfortunately for Clifton, he, uh, he has unknowingly caused Dracula to return to life, his flesh and blood reforming upon the stake's removal from the skeleton. Dracula then attacks Clifton, who tries to kill the Vampire King with rounds fired from his gun. They have no effect, and Clifton is soon knocked out and tossed down a pit for Dracula to summon later. Transforming into a bat and flying to the upper levels of the castle, Dracula happens upon Frank and Jean, who have just come across the portion of the floor that Clifton fell through a few pages earlier. When Jean once more panics at the sight of a bat, they are further shocked when said bat suddenly transforms into Dracula himself. Both are astonished, and June, uh, Jean soon finds herself under Dracula's hypnotic thrall and walks toward the vampire, pushing Frank aside in the process. So Frank takes, or rather, Drake uh, takes it upon himself to knock Jean out. When Dracula attempts to attack, Frank pulls out Jean's silver compact. Silver is one of a vampire's few weaknesses, and Dracula is forced to transform into a bat to flee the scene and find sustenance elsewhere. Find it, Dracula does indeed, when he happens across a girl walking alone in the streets of the village and quickly feasts upon her before heading back to the castle. When the girl's body is found by villagers, they realize that Dracula is back from the grave, and so they organize a mob to torch the castle. When Dracula returns to the castle, he finds Jean sleeping in a bed all by herself. When he attempts to feed upon her once more, he finds that she's wearing a crucifix, which drives him back. This was all a trap set by Frank, who reveals to Dracula their common ancestry and attacks Dracula further by showing him a mirror. Getting close enough, Frank tosses Jean's silver compact at Dracula, striking the vampire's brow. Although it causes Dracula pain, it only enrages him, and the vampire lord is soon upon uh, Drake with the intent to kill him. Jean wakes up to find Dracula attacking Frank just as the angry mob of townspeople is approaching the castle with torches. Dracula, meanwhile, uses his, hip his hypnotic gaze to make Jean remove the crucifix from her person and then toss it out a window. As the, town pe the townspeople light the castle on fire, Frank revives uh, to find Dracula feeding upon Jean. Trying to stop Dracula, <clears throat> Frank uses the silver compact once more, forcing Dracula to once again change into, uh, change into a bat and flee the scene. Drake picks up uh, Jean's body and carries her out of the castle, where he tells the villagers that Dracula is gone now. After the townspeople leave, Frank sees to Jean and is horrified to find her dead. His tears are interrupted, however, when Jean suddenly rises up and explains to Frank that because Dracula did not kill her, she was transformed into a vampire. Seeing Dracula fly away, uh, Jean then follows after him, leaving Frank to mourn over his loss. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, uh, guys, I got to tell you, I... 
I'm kind of a, a, a newcomer to uh, Tomb of Dracula. This is a comic book I've heard about my entire life, but it just didn't really seem like something I'd be too interested in reading. But earlier this year, as many of you may remember, I kind of went through... Honestly, I don't even really know what to call it, like superhero malaise, maybe. I went through some kind of a... Yeah. Malaise, I don't know. That just seems like that's the best word. Um, where reading superhero comics just just didn't seem like something that that I really was interested in doing, at least at that time, and God knows, certainly not right now either. So I cast about trying to find something else to read. And like I say, I've heard about Tomb of Dracula my whole life, how amazing this comic book is, and it seemed like there is a very dedicated and very hardcore fan base that this comic book has. And honestly, I just can't picture a comic book that sucks having this kind of a devoted fan following to it. You know, it just, if this comic book was poop on a stick without the stick, surely it it wouldn't have this kind of fan following, right? So I decided to check it out. So on the way home from work one day, I just stopped off at uh, my favorite uh, pizza restaurant. You remember when you could go to pizza restaurants and not have to worry about getting infected with God knows what? Weren't those the days? So... Anyway, stopped off at my favorite pizza restaurant, ordered lunch, and while I waited for my food, and then while I ate my food, I bought Tomb of Dracula number one off of the Marvel app and just sat there in the pizza shop reading it. And look, is this the greatest comic book that anybody has ever read or anybody has ever written or anything like that? No, no. The clear answer to that is no. But this is still a very strong first issue. Now, it's not exactly a spoiler to say that Jerry Conway doesn't really stick around all that long as a writer, and he's soon to be replaced, ultimately, by Marv Wolfman. And it's really Wolfman that that gives this this title its its cred and that seems to be the prevailing opinion among a lot of fans and honestly it's really not my business to sit here and disagree with longtime fans of tomb of dracula if that's your point of view about it then you know what that's fine you're entitled to your opinion i'm just saying that sitting here or actually sitting there in the pizza shop reading this issue I just didn't really see anything wrong with this. I didn't see what the problem was. I didn't see what there was to not like about at least the first issue. This just seems like a really well done first issue. So take that for whatever you think it's worth just from the outset. But looking at the cover, obviously this is a very, well, not very famous, but this is a pretty well-known uh, cover and this is something that if you spend any great amount of time in comic books as a whole, sooner or later, 
later, I'm guessing, but sooner or later, you you will inevitably come across Tomb of Dracula number one, at the very least, the cover. And I must say, this is an incredibly well done cover. It's got well done trade dress. I love the logo. There's this um um I don't know what you this it's not a subtitle, a pre-title maybe. Big vibrant yellow letters saying Dracula lives, and then you see Dracula, he's holding the lifeless form of uh, some woman on the cover. He's making his angry, snarly face, and the in the uh, th- this entire scene is just shrouded in frog, uh, frog, <laughs> shrouded in fog. In the distance, you see Castle Dracula overhead. Of course, it's going to be a full moon, just because that's just so atmospheric. And I was sold. I didn't actually need to read this issue to decide that I definitely like this issue. If the if the best part of this issue had just been the cover, that would have been enough for me. But it's not. That's I mean, this is a great cover. Don't get me wrong. But I'm I'm not I'm not prepared to say that's the best part of this issue. No, my friends, the best part of this issue might actually be page one. It's a rain swept night in Transylvania. Uh, there's lightning flashing all, all all through the sky. You've you've got this uh, moonlit uh, castle Dracula. It's all spooky looking and everything. It's uh, partly swallowed up in in shadows and partly uh, lit by the moon. It's just so atmospheric and spooky looking. The trees don't have a single leaf on them. And in the sky, the lightning is spelling out the title of this story, which is Dracula. And it's just... This is just so well done. I dig. Just page one. You know, I mean, so I I loved the cover. That sold me on the issue. Then I got to page one, which like sold me on this issue all over again, which is kind of a rare thing in comics. Now, just truth in advertising, guys, just full disclosure here. I'm a Gene Colan fanboy from way back. Uh, Gene Colan on Daredevil, Gene Colan on Batman. I like Gene Colan. I like this kind of not quite Vertigo style that that he had. Uh, I, I I just dig Gene Colan. You know, he's he's just got this very horror movie kind of style going for him, and I'm a fan of his. I I love it. And f- from page one to page last in this issue you get a really good idea of what Gene Colan as an artist was all about and why I dig his art so fucking much. So, uh, the cover and then page one, this issue's already batting two for two. So that's, that's fine by me. I just, I just fucking love this art. Oh my gosh. It's so good. So, and then of course you get this kind of menacing, uh, caption, uh, Right across the top on page one, it says, Hours have passed since the storm began. Long hours since last the light of day cast webbings of shadow over this craggy hillside. Everywhere there is rain, an oppressive rain that seems to uh, swallow all sound and replace those normal sounds of twilight with a kind of hollow echo. An echo? Yea, an echo of many things of other times in this same place, 
of other men and other eves, of one man, a man become legend, a man whose name is whispered by these wary hill people, a man whose name is Dracula. And then, of course, because that's not enough moody, atmospheric uh, uh, text on one page. No, we got to get more. Uh, page one continues uh, saying, In this night there is a stench of death, of things long, long past living. But tis a stench quickly lost, consumed, as all things are consumed, by the seemingly endless, seemingly eternal rain. Now listen. Strain to hear beneath that ageless torrent. Strain to hear a less regular sound than the repetitious roar of rain. The sound of a faltering engine. The sound of a nightmare's birth. And how is that for, for setting the mood? As if the art didn't do that all by itself, and it did do that all by itself. This is almost gilding the lily in terms of going that extra mile to say, this ain't no Spider-Man comic, bro. This ain't, this ain't the Avengers. This is a horror comic book with everything that implies. And in fact, not just that, this is a horror comic book specifically about Dracula. And so, pay, or rather, the, the uh, cover does a great job of, of setting the mood. But if it's possible to improve upon perfection, I think we're seeing it right here on page one, where you just... This is the stuff that I like about horror, you know, the atmosphere of it. You know, characters and, and uh, narrative development and all that kind of stuff. I mean, for me, what I love about horror is the spooky visuals, you know, the, the, the leafless trees and the windy nights and how cold uh, the weather is. And you've got this big, scary looking silver full moon in the sky shining down upon the haunted castle. You know, that's the shit that I'm into. And the minute you start getting too far away from like the visual components of what horror is supposed to be all about, I can't speak for anyone else, guys, but that's, that's when you lose me, at least, all right? I guess everybody has a preference. They all have whatever it is that they're looking for from horror, and that's fine, I guess. But for me, what it all comes down to is the 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 the, the spooky atmosphere and, and, and the tone of everything. And and for me, that that's really what it's all about. And so, for those reasons, you really can't do better than to have Gene Colan drawing your horror comic. I mean, if what you want to do is attract Magnus, have have Gene Colan draw your horror comic book. That seems to be the the the, the killer app. So anyway, moving right along, getting into page two because yes, these pages are numbered in my app, so that's it's kind of nice to use the actual proper page numbers rather than the the Marvel app page numbers. So anyway, so the uh, this is on a page two again. You just get more mood and more atmosphere. But one of the other things that you finally get here is people talking to each other. Now I just spent a few a, a few minutes a while ago telling you how much the minute you start getting characters and shit like that involved into your horror story, when you get too much into that, that's when you start losing me. But I do want to draw 
your attention to the the dialogue here because there's an art to writing good comic book dialogue right I just want to read some of this stuff to you it says please Frank we better stop somewhere ask directions it's been hours since we left the airport and I don't but I do Clifton you'll just have to trust me somehow I know this road no I can't get lost the castles up ahead a mile it can't be more Frankie the car some sort of ditch ahead can't avoid it look out crunch and so on and so on right basically this is very economical very brief and very well written comic book dialogue now again I'm aware of the fact that when it comes to Tomb of Dracula Marv Wolfman is basically considered king of the castle so to speak and Jerry Conway he did a good job of teeing everything up for Marv Wolfman, but that's really about the most you can say. That seems to be the prevailing consensus. And again, it's not my business to tell anybody they're wrong. I'm just saying that what we see here, literally on every single page of this issue, is Jerry Conway very efficiently and very uh, economically uh, establishing character, establishing location, advancing the story, so on and so forth. All the the, the uh, tricks of the trade. Now, guys, credit must be given, all right, to Gene Colan, because if I'm not terribly mistaken, like 99% of Marvel comics, especially in the early 70s, were written with the Marvel method, where basically an artist will draw an issue of a comic book based on a plot that he receives from the writer. He just draws whatever he wants that works within the confines of that plot. Then the writer comes back in later. He adds dialogue and and all that stuff. And so really, there is an argument here that what we're really seeing is uh, Gene Colan unleashed. All right, this is Gene Colan, who is, he's the one that's setting the pace. He's the one that's unfolding the narrative here. And yeah, Jerry Conway plotted this thing, and then he came back in later to add dialogue and captions and, and all that fun stuff. And he's the one that's, that's doing the heavy lifting in terms of explaining who these characters are, what their agendas are, what their, what their motives are, and all that stuff, that's fine. But nevertheless this is really the gene colon show in a certain kind of way i'm i'm familiar with those arguments and hell i'll even agree with them but i'm just saying that the dialogue here which is what i'm really sort of harping on the the dialogue here it really is it really is a cut above you know it really is very well done and i think it's uh this is basically this is the kind of dialogue that you need to be doing if you're going to write for a comic book. It needs to be... You need to say as much as you can with as few words as possible. There's an art to doing that. Not just anyone can do it. And if you ask me, Jerry Conway is kind of a master of that. And then all throughout here on page two, you get more of this moody, atmospheric Gene Colan art with 
the 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 rain swept panels and the the wind is blowing crazy all over the place and it's smearing the headlights of the car just before it crashes and all that stuff. This is God this is so well done. I love this art. So well done. So moving right along, we get a little bit more character development here. And maybe it's just on the strength of the visuals that I find the character development in this issue to be less annoying than it normally would be for me. But it's jeez, this is just so well done. Here, I, I just flipped ahead a little bit to page four. Uh, this is uh, page four, panel six. Uh, it's basically Otto. He's driving the uh, trio down the road in the coach. And there's a pretty minimalistic background that's going on here. You get uh, what looks like the castle in the distance. But aside from that, there's just really not much of a background here. And you get the idea, a panel like this, it probably took... Uh, Gene, I don't want to put like an exact time on this, but I'm guessing it just did not take him very long to knock out this, like specifically. Panel six on page four, right? Just did not, it probably didn't take him very long to get this knocked out. It's really just uh, some lines, really. I mean, you've got a horse, you've got uh, the coach, you've got the driver, he's got an umbrella, there's some lightning, there's a castle. So you're not going to bang this out in five minutes, I'm guessing. But at the same time, he just, he could not have spent very much time on this panel. But holy fuck, will you, will you just look at the atmosphere on this, uh, just on this one panel. Because for the moment, you know, fuck everything else. Just look at this one panel. This is just so well done. And it's, like I say, it's just, uh, it, it's lines. That's it. It's just, it's, it's some lines. But... The mood that, that that is evoked, just in this one panel, it uh, this just plays like gangbusters for me. I love this art, so good, so good. And I'm gonna take a drag off of my e-cig real quick, so just bear with me. Also going to get a sip on what's left of my Coke here. All right. So, <clears throat> uh, page five, panel three. Uh, Clifton says, there goes ten bucks. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, there goes ten bucks, American. That just about cleans out my bankroll, Frankie lad. This castle better be as much of a tourist attraction as that old uh, as that old book paints it to be. Otherwise, we're broke. Again, guys, very economical uh, dialogue. It establishes the nationality of Frank uh, Frank Drake. It implies that Clifton is not American. It uh, it outright says that the 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 trio is now officially completely out of money, and they're here to turn something. We don't quite know what yet, at least not, ba based, not, not based on anything on this page. Uh, they, they're basically here to turn this thing into a tourist attraction, wherever it is that they're going. All of that in three dialogue balloons, guys. 
Now, again, I'm well aware of the fact that Marv Wolfman is, he's the acknowledged uh, uh, champ of this book, and that's fine. I'm just saying, let's give Jerry Conway his due on being able to write very clear and very concise comic book dialogue. I don't really know if you could literally take this this dialogue and drop it into a movie or something like that and expect it to just go over just fine. You'd prob you probably would have to tweak it, but dialogue that you read it can have a certain style to it that wouldn't necessarily work for dialogue that you listen to. Those are the rules. I don't make the rules, I just follow them. So anyway, and again, just look at this, uh, page five, panel three, and then panel four, the fucking atmosphere that's going on here. And in a way, again, I know I was just sucking Jerry Conway's dick uh, about, about his dialogue, but there is a part of me that does kind of lament how dialogue heavy this issue is, because every single dialogue balloon, every single caption, every single sound effect... All of those things kind of block out some of Gene Colan's art. And there is a sense in which that is almost a criminal offense. Of course, the other way of looking at it is all it's really doing is just blocking out lines. But fuck it. I mean, it's it's like it's a criminal offense to block out so much of Gene Colan's art. And God, this is just so good. Why can't we get comics like this anymore? God, this is so good. Look at this. Look at this. Just look at page five. For those of you reading along with me, just look at page five. I mean, holy fuck, why don't we get comics like this anymore? So anyway, page six, page seven, uh, eight, somewhat into page nine, we get some flashbacks, which you need to get. You cannot start this uh, this issue with this material. You, you pretty much have to do this this material, these... Uh, these scenes, these character interactions, the 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 uh, this dialogue, uh, this exposition—you you pretty much have to do this as a flashback. And I don't know. That's I don't know. Maybe there's just no way around it. But anyway, so then getting into page nine, panel three. This is a—it's a semi-money shot of the trio uh, facing the uh, castle with lightning flashing across the sky, almost like evil, tendrily-looking fingers. And, again, the atmosphere, the fucking atmosphere that's going on here. This is just so amazingly well done. Such amazing art. I try not to say the word exquisite, because that's just such a douchebaggy, pretentious thing to say. You know, oh, this is exquisite. But, I don't know. It, but, my God, I don't know what else to use, what other word to use to describe this art. It's just... For as much as I was sucking Jerry Conway's dick just a little while ago for his ability to write really concise dialogue, my gosh, the the art here, uh, it's like I'm kind of sucking Gene Colan's dick a little bit too. This is just so well done. I love this art. It's great. Gene Colan. What a, what a loss. Just, I mean, look, I realized that Gene Colan, he was a man. He had friends. He had family. And the death of Gene Colan, the man, affected people's lives. And so I'm not trying to minimize that, but it's just, man, what a creative and artistic loss his death was, you know? 
I'm not, again, I'm not trying to like say that, you know, the man's life is only worth his art. I mean, I'm not trying to, but man, what a creative loss. You know, actually in a weird kind of way, you know who I would uh, compare to, to Gene Colan, just in terms of style, right? Or not even so much style, but more like uh, tone and atmosphere. Kelly Jones. Kelly Jones. You wouldn't look at a Kelly Jones illustration and 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 wonder, golly, I, I wonder if if that's Gene Colan. No one, no one, but no one would would ever ask that. But at the same rate, it's just hard to deny that. Kelly Jones is one of those few people out there who could hang with Gene Colan in any kind of a horror comic book. I mean, there is a part of me now that would kind of want to see what Kelly Jones would would do with a vampire. And I don't mean like a Batman vampire story. I mean like an actual vampire story or lacking that an actual com- uh, like horror comic book kind of a thing. I'm very interested to see that. So, anyway. Moving right along, getting into page uh, 13 here, it it's basically Clifton. He comes across Dracula's skeleton getting into page 14. This is where he withdraws the stake from Dracula's chest. Which is kind of a stupid thing to do. I mean, I realize that Clifton is, he's kind of a greedy opportunist. And let's face it, if he doesn't withdraw the stake from Dracula's chest, we don't really have an ongoing title here, now do we? Dracula has got to come back from the dead. But nevertheless, this this is just a monumentally stupid thing to do. And the reason this works for me is it does play into uh, Clifton's his his greed and his ambition and boy does he pay a price for doing this too now one of the things that we do kind of need to emphasize is gene colon was a little bit prescient in his design of dracula because going into this thing i guess i'd assumed that my ideal dracula nothing against bella lugosi but my ideal Dracula is actually Christopher Lee. And so I, w- I guess I was expecting a sort of Christopher Lee take on Dracula. And that's really not what we get. What we get is something like, this is sort of like a more like Jack Palance type of Dracula. And the reason that's kind of prescient is because at the time that this comic book was made and published and released and all that stuff, Jack Palance had never actually played Dracula before. Now, since reading uh, a lot of Tomb of Dracula, I've actually seen the Jack Palance uh, Dracula film. And I'll even say that I enjoy it. But there's this animalistic quality that the Jack Palance version of Dracula has that the Christopher Lee version doesn't. And it's just one actor's interpretation of the material Again, I'm not here to tell anybody that they're wrong. I'm just saying that what works for me is the Christopher Lee version. So take that for whatever you think it's worth. But nevertheless, we do get a very Jack Palance type of type of Dracula throughout the, the, the run of this title. And 
Might I have preferred Christopher Lee? Well, yeah, maybe. But what we get is still fucking amazing because it's Gene Colan and he only knows how to do amazing. So anyway, getting into page 15, Clifton opens fire on Dracula. It achieves exactly nothing. And, jeez, I mean, how many times can I, can I compliment Gene Colan on the same thing again and again before it just gets weir- wearisome? But, holy shit, dude, just look at page 15, guys. Uh, uh, panel one, you've got Dracula, he's, he's moving in for the kill. Uh, panel two, you've got Clifton, he pulls out his revolver and opens fire. Panel three... To no avail. It does absolutely nothing at all. Panel four. Uh, Dracula smacks him uh, across the face. Panel six, or panel five, I should say. He drops his ass uh, uh, down a hole, for lack of a better way to describe it. And all the while, this is just such amazingly great art. Now, to me... The the mark of a really effective artist is look at it and then ask yourself, if this was done perfect on every conceivable technical level, perfect anatomy, perfect lighting, uh, perfect physics, um, perfect, I don't know what else to call it except cinematography or mise-en-scene or, or, or whatever, perfect everything. Would it being perfect on a technical level enhance your enjoyment? If the answer is yes, that's bad art. In this case, the answer is no. The The mood and the atmosphere is just so powerful that, yeah, maybe some, some anatomy isn't quite right, or maybe some perspective isn't quite right, or maybe a line isn't perfectly straight or something. And for me, those problems, quote-unquote, being corrected, really wouldn't contribute much of anything worthwhile to this art. And for me, that's the mark of a great artist, when they're really getting it done, that even their flaws, like if those flaws were removed, you're still not going to enjoy this art anymore now that the art, that the flaws are removed than you do when the flaws are present. That's the sign of a great artist. I mean, guys, look at just to kind of draw a parallel, like look at Frank Miller, okay? Frank Miller on on Daredevil, right? When Frank Miller, he was young, he was lean, he was hungry, he had something to prove. Look at his work on Daredevil. Now ask yourself, how many times did Frank Miller make kind of a a goof with some of his art on Daredevil? Maybe a line isn't quite right, or maybe the anatomy is just kind of warped. Or maybe the perspective is a little bit skewed and it really could be tweaked or improved. But still, how fucking amazingly powerful are so many Frank uh, Frank Miller issues of Daredevil where those flaws, if you can even call them flaws, fixing them wouldn't really improve the art because it's already so powerful and evocative all by itself. Well, same thing going on here in Tomb of Dracula with Gene Colan where... Yeah, maybe there there could be certain <clears throat> weaknesses or technical imperfections that I don't think detract from anything. You know, you you might you might not even notice them unless they're pointed out to you because that's how fucking good everything is. 
God, this is such good art. So, anyway, moving right along. Uh, this is getting into page 17. The bat slowly transforms into Dracula. And something like this, it's really hard to do in comics where, in this case, you've got a vampire who's slowly transforming into Dracula. And as an artist, like, how do you... How do you depict that? How do you visualize that? And Colin, I, I would say he does probably about as good a job as you possibly can do with something like this. But one of the things that really works for me is that the tone of, of the art up to this point has been so dark and so sinister and so menacing that you can easily imagine just how fucking horrifying something like this would be to see IRL. You know, you're just wandering around this castle. Your nerves are already keyed up as it is because of how just fucking spooky this castle is. And then you see a bat flapping around that slowly warps and twists into the shape of a man. And not just any man. I mean, fucking Dracula. And just how terrifying that would be. You get that uh, uh, right here on page 17 in panels 1, 2, and 3. That transformation process and just how creepy and just fucking scary that would be. And it's just so masterfully done. So masterfully done. I love this art. And yeah, page 18. Yeah, boy, you can't put this in a comic book anymore, can you? Uh, Frank basically smacks Jean upside the head to knock her out. Um, because she was under... Dracula's hypnotic thrall and this honestly this probably was the only way to save her life and yeah boy could never do that in comics these days so anyway this is just so uh, such an amazingly great issue I fucking dig this issue this is this is just great horror fun and I I think in this case the cover copy really does uh say it all I took it from a from a different issue of Tomb of Dracula, you understand. But nevertheless, you know, uh, Marvel is always sort of, they're already sort of uh, famous or perhaps infamous for uh, being grandiose. But what I took from a different issue of uh, the Tomb of Dracula that I've I've pretty well decided on including it, at least in the artwork for this episode. It says, Gothic horror in the macabre Marvel manner. And boy, does the does this issue live up to that billing or what? This is just such an amazingly well-drawn issue that it's like, part of me, actually, you know what? I will say it. This issue is worth tracking down and buying just for the art. Even if the writing was shit and it's not, it isn't, but even if the writing was kind of shit, I still think this issue would be worth tracking down just for the art. And it's the rare comic book about which I would make that kind of a recommendation. So all in all, definitely recommended. Track this thing down. If you like horror, I can pretty well guarantee you will not be disappointed with this. So anyway, now... Normally, what I would want to do is follow Tomb of Dracula number one 
this week up. I'd want to follow that up next week with Tomb of Dracula number two, and then probably Tomb of Dracula number three the week after that. I can pretty well guarantee, guys, that's not going to be happening, uh, just because I kind of have to podcast. It's very much a catch-as-catch-can sort of a thing. So um, I doubt, at least anytime soon, I'll be able to do, you know, uh, multiple issues of or I'll be able to record new episodes where I talk about multiple issues of anything back to back to back. Um, that is my preference, but I just don't see that as a logistical possibility, at least not for the time being, not anytime soon. So for next week, yes, I do guarantee for a change that there is going to be an episode next week. It's basically uh, me. I'm going to be talking about a little bit more what I was talking about earlier in this episode, my kind of alienation from uh, mainstream superhero comics and why I'm being kind of drawn more and more to horror TV shows, horror movies, horror comics, horror everything. Um, Going to get a little bit more into that next week. Also, not to review horror comics next week, but I just want to touch upon a few other horror comics next week, none of which, by the way, are going to be uh, Tomb of Dracula, but nevertheless, that's going to be next week. And I think that's pretty much it for me for this week, so bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. 
Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void were prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>